Our text today, John 16, 16 to 33. This is the word of Almighty God. And this is the Lord Jesus speaking to his disciples. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman's giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Pray with me, friends. Lord, please add your blessing to our study of your holy word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. As a child growing up in a tiny southern Illinois town, if I went to church with my grandparents, I went to a little Baptist church in my little tiny town. And I'll tell you one thing about our church. We did not do modern. There was a piano. There was an organ. And we sang out of the Baptist hymnal. We sang, are you washed in the blood and nothing but the blood? We sang, in the garden and I'll fly away. On a regular basis. We sang victory in Jesus. And and that touched Dennis's heart right there, just mentioning it. (laughs) Amen. Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. 
He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. Now, I don't necessarily seeing us going to bouncy Southern gospel as our musical sound here at PRC. Though some of you would go for that for a day or two, right? There you go. But let me take a minute to tell you about a victory that we're going to find in our Lord Jesus. See, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took one last evening to share with and teach his disciples. The Savior comforted his friends. He started getting them ready for his departure. He pointed them toward hope, toward the coming of the Holy Spirit. And as we wrap up John 16, we're going to see Jesus promise joy, union with God, and true victory. So let's get ready. You're going to have three points to write down as we finish the upper room discourse of our Lord. And as we get ready, Lord willing, in the month of November to see his great high priestly prayer in chapter 17. That'll, that'll take us, Lord willing, right into December, right up to the, into the middle of the Advent season. Which, by the way, is not nearly as far away as you think it is. Point number one. Christ brings lasting joy. Point number one is that Christ brings lasting joy. Let's take a look at verses 16 to 18. A little while and you'll see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Uh, Have you ever explained and explained something to somebody only to find that no matter how much explaining you do, they still don't get it. I also could have asked how many of you are married. My wife explains things to me and I don't get it. You try, you try to make it clear, to make it simple. But for some reason, it just doesn't click. And even when you say the simplest part of what you want somebody to grasp, sometimes they just don't follow The Lord Jesus has been explaining and explaining and explaining to his disciples what's about to happen in the ministry. And no matter how clearly he explains it, the disciples are not ready to understand. The truth that Jesus has to tell them is so mind-blowing, so utterly foreign to their understanding that the disciples hear it again and again and they miss it again and again. Verse 16, Jesus says to the disciples, in a little while, they're not going to see him. Then again, little while, they will see him. And this baffles the disciples. But all through the gospel, according to John, Jesus has said to the disciples that the religious leadership of the Jews want to kill him. Earlier in this very week, back in John 12, Jesus predicted that he would die by crucifixion. The crowds listening to Jesus clearly understood that to be what he was talking about. In John 12, 32 to 34, we see this. Jesus said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, 
We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? They knew. If you follow the accounts of the other gospel writers, they let us know that Jesus told his disciples that the Jews were going to have him killed. In Matthew 16, verse 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Just this evening, Jesus told the disciples, one of them would betray him, in 1321, that he's going somewhere they cannot follow, 1327. In 1428, Jesus told them he's going to the Father, and in 165, that he's going to the one who sent him. Now, from our perspective, sitting on this side of the cross and the resurrection, Knowing what we know about the life and the ministry of Jesus, about his sacrificial death, about his glorious resurrection, we find it hard to imagine that the disciples weren't tracking with Jesus. Of course he's going to go away and they're not going to see him for a bit. He's going to the cross. He's going to the grave for three days. And then, of course, the disciples are going to see him again. Why? Because Jesus is going to rise from the grave. He's going to walk with the faithful disciples 40 more days before his glorious ascension into heaven. But on their side of the cross, the disciples weren't yet able to understand. They didn't have the Spirit of God indwelling them to guide them into the truth of God's plan. The disciples were likely still expecting somehow, some way, no matter what he said, Jesus is going to gather a bunch of followers to himself, lead the people of God to victory over the Romans, and establish an everlasting kingdom on earth. The concept that Jesus would have to go to the cross and pay the price for the sins of all the people he was going to save, that was not something the disciples saw coming. But try not to be too hard on the disciples here. I mean, what Jesus said he was going to do is incredible. What Jesus said is an impossibility without an unprecedented miracle taking place. The disciples had no category in their head for thinking about Jesus accomplishing his mission through his own death, resurrection, and ascension alive into heaven. Now, the hints are in the Old Testament. We can find them now. But nobody was going to be catching them before Jesus did what he came to do. Verses 19 to 21, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman's giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. 
I mean, the Savior gets it, right? He sees these guys looking confused and baffled and glazy-eyed. He doesn't try to break it down for them even right now. They're going to understand pretty soon, honestly. But for right now, Jesus wants them to know, you guys are going to face deep sorrow, and it's going to be followed by tremendous, everlasting joy. When Jesus is crucified, the world is going to rejoice. The world's going to party. The religious leaders are going to think that they have finally solved their pesky Jesus problem. And the disciples will grieve. But on the third day, when Christ emerges from the tomb alive, victorious, the disciples will have great joy. And Jesus gives an illustration here. This is a sermon illustration for Jesus. He uses the concept of childbirth. Now, before I explain childbirth to you, allow me to say this. From what I hear, it's painful. I have no actual verification of this. I have no firsthand experience. But I'm just going to believe God and the few ladies who have told me the same thing that even though it is a very painful thing, a woman who gives birth finds joy enough in the child that she forgets the pain. Now, let's not get so literal with Jesus so as to say that she totally doesn't remember that it hurt. I'm guessing some of you still remember that it hurt. Some of you are probably still bitter at those little ones for that. But, What Jesus is saying is that the joy of a new little one is worth the struggle. Would you guys agree with that? Most of the time? Two out of three? What? I mean, okay. Then verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. So this is, the, this is the point. This is the punchline. This is the kicker for this point. The disciples are facing sorrow, great sorrow, painful sorrow. But Jesus is going to come back from the grave. He's going to be alive. And when he comes back and when he does and when his disciples understand what Jesus has done, they are going to have a joy that nobody in the whole wide world can ever take from them no matter what they do to them. Christ brings lasting joy That's what you and I need to see. Do you know Jesus? Do you believe Jesus died and rose from the grave to take away your sins? If you do, then you should have within your heart a joy that you cannot lose. Doesn't matter what the world does to us. Doesn't matter if we're rich or if we're poor. If we're beloved or persecuted. If we have our sins forgiven if we have the promise of forever with the God who made us, we've got hope that nothing in this life is ever going to overcome. Now, let's take a moment. You've got to understand this fact. Joy is not the same as happiness. Happiness has to do with what happens 
to you. Same root. Happiness is completely tied to your circumstances. If things are going well, I'm happy. If things are going poorly, I'm unhappy because what has happened is bad in my mind. Hence the end of the baseball season for me. I was unhappy most of the season because my team stunk out loud. But joy, joy is a thing that goes deep down into the soul. Joy is a heart that is set on and hopeful for good in Christ, no matter what we face in the here and now. Joy is the steadfast strength of the soul that declares that even if we lose everything we have today, we are going to gain more than we've ever imagined for eternity. Joy is the heart's response to understanding something of the truth, of the glory, of the God who saves us, whose presence is our home, whose worship is our purpose. So Christians find joy that Jesus brings you lasting joy. Set your mind on eternity. Remember the victory that Jesus won for your soul when he died to save you and rose to reign. I was talking, actually, you guys remember Matt Kuntz, Matt Namie Kuntz? Rumor has it Matt's going to be with us next year for our men's retreat, just so some of you guys know. So be excited about that. But I was talking to Matt, and we were talking about how, do you guys know the people that have, like, in their pockets the, there's almost like a list of travel destinations they have to get to or their life isn't complete? They're always filling out their travel resume, their experience resume, their fancy food resume. You know what I'm talking about? And we were just talking about the fact that, you know, whatever side of the millennial debate you're on, whether you believe in a literal millennium or whether you believe in the kingdom of of heaven just being set up when Christ returns, you know what? There's going to be better sightseeing then than now. And there's going to be better food than now. And there's going to be better adventure then than now. So we need to be careful not to let our soul's joy or our our outlook on life be determined with whether we get to fill out that resume now. Make sense? Now, if you're here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus, let me tell you this. There is no way for you to have everlasting joy without you first coming to Jesus. So here's what I invite you to do. Run to Jesus in faith. I don't care who you are or who you've been. It doesn't matter what you've been through. You're invited. Run to Jesus in faith. Repent, believe Rest your hope in Jesus alone for your forever. Then you can start having a joy that will never, ever end. Point number two today. Christ brings union with the Father. Christ brings union with the Father. 
verses 23 to 25. In that day, you will ask nothing of me, Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until, until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So Jesus is still running with the theme of lasting joy, right? There's a joy that's going to belong to his followers after his sacrifice, after his resurrection. And on that day, the day that the disciples really understand that Jesus has risen from the grave, that he'll never die again, that he has accomplished salvation, they're going to have joy. And now Jesus turns the point slightly. He's starting to talk about his followers asking things of the Father in Jesus' name. That's not a new thought. Jesus brought it up earlier this evening in the upper room. In John 15, 16, Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Well, now Jesus says that this concept of you asking the Father in Jesus' name, that's going to be a part of how the disciples find the fullness of joy that Jesus is bringing to them. The way to get this is for you to put yourself in the mindset of the disciples at the table at that time. Up until now, when the disciples wanted to see the will of God accomplished in Jesus, what did they do? They asked Jesus to do it, right? If the disciples wanted somebody healed... They asked Jesus for the most part, unless Jesus gave them power and sent them out. If they wanted to have a crowd fed, what did they do? They asked Jesus. If they wanted the waves to be calm and the wind to stop blowing, they woke Jesus up and said, hey, we're going to die. Jesus is here telling the disciples that once he has risen from the grave, they're not going to go to him to ask him to ask the Father for what they need. Once Jesus rises from the grave, the disciples who believe will have a new relationship with God, one unlike anything they've ever imagined. And the new relationship that they have with God is going to be the source of their eternal joy. Because instead of going to Jesus saying, hey Jesus, would you ask the Father to do this? They will ask the Father directly for things under the authority, under the authorization of Jesus. They're going to ask the Father in Jesus' name. You guys see why that's better? Here's a good example, by the way. Husbands. Got some husbands in the room? How many of you husbands have ever had your wife tell you to reach out to someone's husband to see if he and his wife want to come have dinner with you? And you're like, why don't you text her? It's the two of you going to tell us what our schedules are anyway. Am I wrong? Tell me when I'm telling lies. Right? You know. There are times like, I will not be the middleman. I will not. (laughs) You've got to text her. Jesus is saying, you're not going to need a middleman to go to the Father. John 16, 25 to 27. 
I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believe that I came from God. Jesus said, I know. I know I've talked to you about this stuff and it's been kind of metaphorical, guys. I know that you guys have no mental space in your head for the radical change of relationship with God that Jesus is going to bring. I get it. The disciples had no way of imagining the personal level of the, of the relationship that you get with God when you rest your soul in Jesus and Jesus' finished work. I mean, remember this. Three years ago or more, just a little over three years ago, these men around the table, the only way they knew how to worship God was under the old covenant temple system. If they were guilty of sin, they had an animal killed as a sacrifice for their sins. The concept of them personally knowing God, relating to God, asking things of God without going through a Jewish priest, that would have been stunning. Remember, the Old Covenant didn't offer the individual personal access to the throne of God, not in the same way. It didn't give the follower of God a brand new heart or the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God in exactly the same way that we get this today. The Spirit living within the believer so that we can know God in a sweet, personal way. This is a new covenant promise. See Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. See Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. If you grew up under the old covenant, if you had true faith, if you had saving faith, because even in the old covenant, if anyone was actually saved, they were saved by grace through faith. But if you were them back then, you would have loved God. Of course, you would have prayed. You would have worshipped the Lord. You would have sung psalms. You would have attended feasts. You would have memorized scripture. You would have obeyed the commands of God. But your mind would have always seen your experience with God as something that had to be mediated through the priesthood, through the temple, through the sacrificial system. You would have never dreamed of walking into the presence of God all by yourself to ask for something. That, that's for the new covenant era. But Jesus highlights that the disciples are going to be authorized by him in his name to directly approach the Father. Jesus is not saying they're going to ask Jesus and Jesus will go to his Father on their behalf. Once the work of Jesus on the cross is done, once the resurrection happens, the disciples and every believer will be able to approach God with freedom and with confidence. As Ephesians 3.12 says, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. There's a major mistake some people make when they think about God. Some people, and maybe you do too, because you haven't thought very biblically here. I love you, but you could be wrong. Some people, when they think about God, they think of the Father as someone who is and always has been stern and disappointed with us 
while Jesus acts as the go-between trying to keep the father calm. No, 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 it's okay, it's okay. I, I, know, I know Terry didn't mean it when she said that. Well, okay, she did, I know that, but... I, I know, just don't be mad. Don't be mad, I'm going to get it. Don't be mad. You guys ever think of God like that? That's not the biblical picture, friends. In verse 27... Highlight this verse, underline this verse, love this verse, read this verse, memorize this verse. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. If you're going to grasp the Bible's story, you must understand the united plan, the united will of the persons of the Holy Trinity. Before there was time, the one God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit, united in a plan to redeem a people for God. And that plan includes the Father electing people to salvation and sending the Son to accomplish the redemption It includes the Son willingly being sent and accomplishing the redemption of the elect through his death and resurrection. The Father sends the Son to save us. He gives us to his Son as a gift and a reward for his perfect and faithful work. The Spirit of God is present in all of this, aiding the Son, drawing people to salvation, indwelling the saved, marking us as gods for eternity. Verse 28 says, I came from the Father and have come into the world and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. That's the summary of Jesus' work. Jesus is God. He's eternal God. He's been with the Father since before there was ever time because Jesus is the uncreated God. He came to the world from the Father and now as his work on earth is nearly complete, Jesus is going to leave the world and go back to the Father and the result of that work is that all who believe in him, all who trust that Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he did, all will be adopted Adopted as children into the family of God. You guys buy that? Now then stop and let this floor you. Be overjoyed. God the Father loves you. If you've been drawn by God to faith in Jesus, You can know that you are under the love of God the Father. Also understand, is God unified? What do you say? Is God one will or is God divided with different ideas and different plans and opposing thoughts? God is united. Understand that the unity... And the unchangeability of God means that the love of God the Father that we have is something incredibly special. The Father does not love you less than the Son. The Son does not love you less than the Father. The infinite, perfect God who made you has chosen to set his love upon you and nothing, nothing can change that. 
because the Father sent the Son, because the Son died and rose, because the Spirit convicted you and drew you to faith, God loves you with a love that is as great and strong as God is great and strong. Because the Father has called you a child of God, He loves you with a love that matches His love for His eternal Son. Oh, dear Christian friend, how great it would be for your soul for you to truly learn to rejoice in the love of God the Father granted you through Jesus the Son. Christ unites us with the Father and this is very good news. Christ gives us direct access in his name to the throne room of God. And our third point Christ brings victory. Christ brings victory. Verse 29 to 30 here. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why I believe that you came from God. You ever watch one of those TV shows or YouTube videos where a host interviews a child and asks the child adult questions. We love watching little kids try to explain adult concepts, right? And the more grown up the little kid tries to act, the cuter they are, aren't they? Especially when they miss the point entirely. I think about those shows when I hear the disciples talking here. Jesus says what he just said. They say to Jesus, okay, now we get it. Wow, you really are smart, Jesus. Yep, yep, we understand you now. And I think to myself, it's so cute to watch him try. Just like that. That's what I'm talking about. The disciples don't get it yet, but they are trusting Jesus. That's good. They don't understand how much they don't understand. When they say, oh, Jesus doesn't need anybody to ask him any questions. That's the disciples say, man, you are so smart, Jesus. You don't even need a wise teacher to pull the answers out of you. They agree. Oh, we believe, Jesus, you came from God. 31 to 32. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Again, isn't it cute? Do you? You believe now? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone for the father's with me. Do you now believe? Jesus knows they don't quite get it yet. But Jesus is gracious enough to predict something painful. Now, some of you are going, that doesn't compute for me. How is predicting something painful gracious? Jesus knows 
before this very evening is over, every last one of the disciples around the table is going to run away and hide. They're going to leave him behind to be arrested, to be tried, to be beaten. So why would I say it's gracious that Jesus tells his disciples this? Oh, zone in for this. The disciples need to know that Jesus saw their failure coming. And his knowledge of that coming failure did not change his love for them in any way. You see the weight of that? Christians, let's never ever pretend that sin is okay. You do not have to sin if you have Jesus. You don't ever get to pretend, oh, because I'm so corrupt, I just have to fall. You don't have to. That's the joy of forgiveness in the Holy Spirit. But will you fall if you're a Christian? Probably. Because we haven't taken our skin off yet. We haven't been glorified yet. Sin is ugly, though. Sin is awful. Whether it's little, whether it's big. Right? My smallest sin is me infinitely falling short of God's infinite perfection. So no, I cannot justify or accept sinfulness in my life. But how good is it for me to know that when I fail, God already knew that failure was going to happen. How great is it for you to understand, for me to understand that God saw my failure and he still sent Jesus to die to pay for it. How great is it for me to grasp that even though I hurt, even though I hate my failure, Christ already paid the price for that failure and all of God's anger for my sin was poured out on the sun on the cross 2,000 years ago. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2 begin, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Amen. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus told his disciples of their failure ahead of time so that they would know when it took place that he saw it coming and he still chose to go to the cross to pay for their sin. That, that's loving. And Jesus also let his disciples know that though they would leave him alone, he would never be alone God the Father would never abandon Jesus. The Son of God would walk in his Father's pleasure to the cross at Calvary, through the grave, and out the other side to resurrection life, to eternal glory. You know, even the moment Jesus was on the cross, even the moment Jesus quoted Psalm 22 and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't abandoned by his Father. That's not the right way to think of it. See, at that moment, Jesus was experiencing the exact wrath of the Almighty God for our sins against God. But never, never was Jesus outside of the sovereign hand and perfect plan of the Father. 
That's why moments later, Jesus could say to his father, into your hand, I commit my spirit. Verse 33 wraps up the chapter. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus has told his disciples everything he's told them because he wants them to have peace. This world is hard to face. You guys know that, right? The next hours and the next days are going to be hard for the disciples to face. But Jesus wants them to be at peace because he has already overcome the world. And just like the disciples, you and I live in a hard world. Our world is messed up. You guys know that, right? You've watched the news. Some of you people are way too on Twitter or X or Twix if you want to just put the names together. How many of you immediately just thought, Twix sounds good? (laughs) Sorry. It's a messed up world. It's a hard world. This is going to be a world that brings us trials and tribulations. Jesus said so. Don't be so foolish to think that it's not going to happen. The world, that collection of those who are opposed to God... And to his word, the world will never love us. Until the Savior returns, we are going to be pilgrims longing for our homeland. Until he returns, we're going to go from times of joy to times of tribulation, from times of ease to times of persecution. But we should always take heart. Jesus wants us to have peace. Jesus wants us to remember that he, through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension, he has overcome the world. We are living on a conquered planet. It just doesn't know it yet. Christ has brought victory. And Christ will bring victory. Let me remind you, if you don't yet know Jesus, if you've never surrendered to Jesus as your Lord, today would be a great day to do so. Let me ask you, Christians, would you agree that if someone's here and they don't yet know Jesus, would today not be a great day for them to let go and trust Jesus? Amen. Jesus has already gone to the cross. He's already entered the grave. He's already defeated death. Jesus is alive today. He's sitting on the throne of heaven today. He promises he's going to come back. He's going to judge. He's going to rule forever. He rules now. He'll rule then. He'll never, never not rule. You can be a part of his kingdom. You can be forgiven of all of your wrong. I urge you, come to Jesus in faith and be saved. If you don't know how, come talk to me afterward. Grab a Christian and say, you're a Christian, right? Tell me how to be saved. And if they look at you with a dumb look on their face, both of you come talk to me. (laughs) And Christians, have you heard anything today that should make you rejoice? Christ brings lasting joy. He brings you union with the Father who loves you. Christ brings victory. This is a person, a God, a Savior worth singing about. 
Let's pray together and we will sing about our Savior. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for mercy. I thank you for grace. I thank you for your victory. And I pray that you will give me the hope and the joy of your victory from now till forever. Lord Jesus, I don't want to sin. I thank you that because of your Holy Spirit and regeneration, I don't have to sin. And Lord Jesus, I'm sorry when I do. But I thank you that you've already covered it and that you were sweet enough to tell us about it before it happened. And I pray that you will keep sanctifying us and growing us and strengthening us. I pray that this church will be full of believers who love you deeply, who stand strong, and who have joy and hope in you. I pray that we really will be the sweetest and most gracious Reformed church anybody's ever seen. I pray for kindness and sweetness and love and mercy and gospel and joy on these people. And I pray that you will be magnified in everything we sing and everything we say and everything we do. Make us a light in the world for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.